Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R, and thank you to everyone who has subscribed over the last few weeks. We very much appreciate that here because, of course, all of our uh, money comes from you guys and some sponsorships, so it keeps us afloat. And it's been a tough year uh, for Triple R, like it has for many organizations. But uh, you can still subscribe, actually, and be in the line for all the prizes and so forth up until the 30th of September. So if you want to get online at rrr.org.au, you can do that. And I'll still see your pledges coming through here. I've got a giant screen here. Well, giant by Triple R standards. And uh, we'll see those coming through and I might give them a mention if we have a moment amongst all our many interviews today. But on the line now, I have my uh, wonderful team of colleagues. Uh, Dr. Jen, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Dr. Shane. Oh, I'm so well because the sun's shining and I've been out in it. Just, it's good. <laughs> yeah. Good, happy, smiling. Yeah, you tend to run about 5Ks before most people get up, don't you, I think, most mornings? Uh, as far as I'm allowed to, according to COVID restrictions. Just run yeah. the circle. Run the circle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you're an hour, mate. That's the limiting <laughs> factor, not the distance. Yeah, I, I, I lost track of time. Yes. Well, I, I was out and I went for a long walk and I was a little beyond the hour, I will admit. But that was only because I didn't have any sense of just how unfit I was and I couldn't get back yeah. in time. Yeah, simple as that. <laughs> Good morning, Dr. Ray. Good morning, Dr. Shane. I just wanted to say happy Father's Day. Uh, I hope you, uh, you know, at the, at the station as a, as a dedicated father would be. And uh, I hope you got a card this morning or some type of baked good or uh, you'll be cleaning out a garage later today. Um, uh, made myself some Vegemite uh, toast. Uh, does that count? Oh, there you go. <laughs> I, I, I'm excited. I don't have to cook tonight. Uh, um, there you go. So, uh, well, yeah. yeah, happy happy Father's Day to everyone out there, and also a big uh, big hello to all the all the dads who are doing it tough. Because I know there are many and many who no longer have their parents as a result of many things, including COVID. And to all of you out there in those positions, I I feel your difficulties and hope that the day is not too traumatic for you. Also on the line is Dr. Laura. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You hanging in there? <laughs> yeah. Hanging in there. <laughs> yeah, poor Dr. Laura's been a little bit sick. Sick and tired of lockdown, I think it is. Or, or... Sick and tired of lockdown. What are we going to hear from Dan Andrews today? Uh, who knows? We'll see. He's probably talking right now, but uh, don't worry about it, folks. You can pick it up in the news later. Don't listen in. Yeah. Listen to us. It's more fun to listen to us. We've got some great Way guests coming fun. on. Great guests coming on. We've got uh, one of my favorite nutritionists, Barbara Cardoso, coming on later. We've got another colleague of mine talking about uh, preeclampsia, which is a, a really sort of under-understood um, area of healthcare. And I think uh, Dr. Jen and I are talking to some guy named Rove McManus in about 10 minutes, so who knows what he's going to He'll have something to say for sure. All about kids' books, which will be cool. But let's start with some news. Dr. Jen, what do you got for us? Well, I, I'm going to join in with Laura shortly and tell you about a pretty cool shark story. But before we get there, I do want to tell you about another story that I found. It's, uh, can you imagine that plants might be able to help us find dead bodies? Mm. How, how interesting is that? So imagine this. There are many situations in which we actually need to be able to find human remains that we think have been buried somewhere. So there's all sorts of scenarios. We probably don't need to go into them, but let's just accept that that is something that happens sometime. We need to look for buried bodies. 
And often aerial searches are used, but if you think about it, if you're looking for a cadaver that you believe is in a forest, an aerial search becomes very difficult because you can't really see anything through the trees. So Mm. you can use trained dogs, you can use pedestrian surveys, but it becomes incredibly difficult to cover very much ground in any particular given time. But I've been reading about this whole idea that I've never heard of called forensic botany. And new research has just come out which suggests that trees in a forest actually might reveal exactly what we're looking for. Because, of course, if a body is buried under a tree, you suddenly have this massive influx of nitrogen hmm. into the soil. And it turns out that some species of tree actually um, reveal to us this massive influx of nutrients by changes in their foliage. So there's all these cool photos where you can look down and all of a sudden there's this one tree that's like, oh, that one doesn't look like the others. What's happened there? They've been doing all these trials. They've got these farms where they bury, I don't know, I'm guessing probably pigs rather than humans under trees to see what happens. And some species of tree, the foliage changes colour and all of a sudden you can see with your own eyes this response to this big influx of nutrients, which I just think is fascinating that yet again, you know, what botanical knowledge can give us this whole new insight into something that I, you know, I haven't thought that much about looking for bodies, I must admit. It's it's super cool stuff. I'm just making a couple of notes here because I've got to change some plants. But, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it's important. Imp- <laughs> think about <laughs> the species of tree. It turns out to be really important. Yeah, you want yeah. to hide your tracks. Yeah, eucalypts are okay, but anything that's uh, anything that's not from our hemisphere are in trouble. Uh, God, that's that's interesting I, stuff. I love it. That's amazing. My eyes are like widening. Like, can we find out <laughs> sort of where the most bodies are buried? Like, if you know, what's the best wood if you want to ditch a dead body? I yeah, want to find long, out. And how long does it take? And is it seasonal? You know, if you had something to hide, would you have to plan very carefully the season in order uh, to get through the you know the new flush of new growth on a tree? Yeah, that's a brilliant mm. point. I feel like we're giving too many tips out. I know. I've, I've always used azaleas because I find they, they just bloom beautifully with that kind of nitrogen. Yeah, to which is like, you can do, do what or her own who I'm Shane, talking to here. Remember, my friend Shane, you're on radio. Be careful how much you say. Sorry, Jen, no one listens to this show except our parents. Uh, Dr. Ray, uh, speaking of scaring people off, you want to talk about quantum, quantum computing? Yeah, actually, I want to talk about it was a big advancement in quantum computing last week where Google, of course, has their Sycamore device, which is probably seen as the leading um, quantum computer. Uh, At the end of last year, it finally did a calculation in randomness and probability that a regular computer couldn't. Uh, And so this last week, they published results where they have actually modeled a chemical reaction. Uh, it was diazine, which is a hydrogen and nitrogen molecule, and they model, modeled or predicted its isomerization. So as the molecules shift around, atoms shift around relative to each other. And uh, it's interesting because if we can use quantum computing for chemistry, which is one of the chemical reactions, which is one of the areas they really think it has potential, it could really revolutionize how we do computational chemistry. And the reason why for that is because Atoms and molecules in chemistry are governed by quantum mechanics, so a quantum computer might be an ideal way to do that. But um, when I started reading about it, my goodness, quantum computing's really hard. I mean, I thought it was difficult for them to make the devices because you need to be able to make the quantum states of the different atoms and then not interfere with them while they're doing the calculation. And when you read a quantum state, you bias it simply by reading it. But it's not actually clear if it's going to work yet, that there's a lot of challenges in being able to get these calculations to work. 
um, and to being able to sample those quantum states. And even if they do all that, they keep on talking about this thing about error and noise, where you're make you're modeling a you're using a computer that's made of a physical system, and physical systems made of atoms and molecules are inherently noisy. And so there's a lot of math that just goes in dealing with the fact that it's a quantum computer. And so um, this is an exciting step forward, but there's a really big mountain to climb here. Um, and uh, it's not clear if they're going to make it for Everest for every type of calculation they want to use it yet. It could still take quite some time, but it's an exciting first step. But well, it, I, I thought quantum computing was like, oh, wow, it's going to change the world. They got a long way before we see the world changing stuff, but uh, they're, they're, they're really working at it. And uh, I, I can't wait to see what they'll do next. Yep, there's a lot to do. And uh, one of the problems, of course, in quantum mechanics is as soon as we start interacting in any way, shape, or form with quantum systems, we change those systems. So it's the whole observer effect thing coming into play. And um, you, can't, you can't isolate these systems very easily. It's really tough stuff. So, yeah, good stuff. Uh, Dr. Laura, what do you got for us? Well, I saw a story that, you know, had the word megalodon in the uh, title and so who's not going to click on that article and then I thought imagine if you were a sharp researcher I mean I got my PhD in immunology boring imagine if I was saying that my PhD was in prehistoric shark research I mean that would give you so much more kudos I was thinking yeah can I just preface can I just preface this by saying last night I watched the film Deep Blue Sea with my son and partner I Uh, thought you were going to say the Meg yeah and it was what was awesome because they were using it to make these special materials to treat Alzheimer's disease and I just got thinking about sharks and what we could do anyway go on it was scary scary as crap I was I was thinking about people who research sharks and the fact that apparently it's been hugely debated how big the um, I keep wanting to say Megatron, which of course is Transformer, but the Megalodon <laughs> actually was. But it's been um, actually shown for the first time. So this week in Science Reports, a group from the UK um, put together reconstructed models to actually estimate the size of the shark for the first time. So this has been highly debated how big it was because all you have from sharks is fossilized teeth isolated teeth from this shark by the way which is the biggest shark that ever lived of seven inches so if you like if you see people with these teeth in their hands apparently thomas jefferson has had one bit of trivia there um this tooth is like the size of a hand so they put together mathematical models reconstructed the size um together with um its fossilized teeth oh because i of course if you shouldn't know which you should know um, which I actually wasn't sure that I did know, is that, of course, sharks don't have bones. They just have cartilage, which doesn't fossilize very well, which enables their sort of jaws to open really, really wide so they can catch their prey. Anyway, drumroll how big it was. 15 to 18 meters in length, which is three times a great white shark, head of like five meters, and a dorsal fin, which is the size of an adult human. Whoa, that is some dorsal fin. That is some dorsal fin, and that is some shark. I kind of went a little bit deeper because I got really excited about researching the shark. 276 teeth in the mouth of this shark. Wow. <laughs> Does that I blow d- your mind? I just find some of these creatures are, are phenomenal. Like when you think of their, their – one of the things that amazes me is their capacity to get enough food in a given day. Well, that's – so actually, so this, this um, shark went extinct 2.6 million years ago widely debated about why it went extinct. It was around the time of the Ice Age. Um, was it that um, it was sort of, was it that it couldn't catch its major, you know, prey, which is whales in colder waters, or was it getting outcompeted by the more agile great white shark for its food? Because it's going to take a lot of 
to keep that, mm. you know, that big boy going. But can I give you just a little bit more trivia, which I know you guys will appreciate? <laughs> yeah, go for it. Megalodon versus T-Rex, bite strength, who's going to win? I'd put Megalodon in for sure. Totally Megalodon. Yeah, Megalodon. It is. It can crush a small um, car, so it's got a power of like oh. 40,000 pounds that it can crush with that mouth. But the yeah. super cool thing about this study was that all the estimates in the past that they'd made of megalodon size were just based on comparisons with the great white. And it turns out that actually the great white isn't a direct descendant of megalodon at all. So this was the first study that they actually took into account four other species that are closer descendants of megalodon to come up with a more accurate estimate, which is really cool because, you know, like Laura said, you've only got a tooth to go on. So it's pretty hard to just, you know, extrapolate out and say, oh, well, a great white tooth is this big, a megalodon tooth was this big. Let's say the megalodon was this big. So I think it was cool that they brought some, and some maths again, into it. Highly debated. People thought the great white was just a descendant. Imagine all these shark research just sitting around at a meeting debating, you know, what, anyway, I wish yeah. I was a shark researcher now. <laughs> Uh, next week. Laura, it's not too late. Yeah. No. <laughs> it's not too late. I'm sure there's some immunology link you can do with sharks. I mean, God, they live forever. Surely they don't get that sick. They're swimming them out in salt water. We all know salt's good to get rid of bacteria. You know, like there's got to be a link there you can you can draw that's just farcical, but who cares? How do sharks live for? Do we know? Some of them are around 100 years, right, Jen? Is that right? Yeah, long time. Yeah. Some of them are super long-lived. Yeah. Amazing. I just find uh, I find everything about sharks fascinating, amazing, extraordinary, uh, which is why I haven't let my, my kid watch any Jaws or other films until he was 13 and he was thoroughly educated on the importance of sharks in our environment. So now we can watch them yeah. for fun as opposed to for education, which was the vision I got when I was seven years old. Oh. You know, Don't take a bath for a month because you've just watched Jaws. <laughs> Mind you, I will say, he seemed to be standing a little bit further back from the toilet last night than normal, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, any sort of water was a concern. Now, we're going to have to say goodbye to our news segment because uh, we're going to a short break for some music. And then when we come back, Dr. Jen and I will be interviewing Rove McManus here on Triple R, um, a very important uh, new role he's taken on, which will be interesting. So, Dr. Ray, Dr. Laura, thanks so much. We'll chat again soon. Bye. Bye. Bye, guys. All right. Uh, here's some music for you, folks, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. We still have Dr. Jen on the line who is here to help me talk about uh, the launch of National Book Week. And we also have Rove McManus on the line. You haven't been on the show before. Rove, how are you going? Not in a while, I think. I haven't triple R in a long time. Yeah, well, welcome back. Um, now, you're not the uh, average scientist we would have on, on the line, but you are the first National Book Week ambassador. Tell us a bit about National Book Week and what your role is there. Shame, well, mate, just... Nature Book Week. Oh, sorry, Nature, God. <laughs> I was about to start. Yeah. It's not just uh, National Book Week. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Nature Book Week. And, of course, we'll become like, culminating yep. with the Environmental environmental Literacy uh, Award that we'll be giving out. Um, yeah, basically, you know, it's uh, I love books and I love literature, especially when it comes to um, sharing that with, with my daughter. Reading is an important part of our household. But, but so too uh, environmental and conservation issues. 
So, um, yeah, when you can put the two together, I'm, I'm on board. When I was younger, the idea of having books that uh, you could connect with to, to help you um, appreciate the environment, it wasn't necessarily something that would be done in a creative way. They were very text-driven, mm. factual-driven. And there's a lot more now that uh, even live in the, the somewhat uh, fiction space uh, to, to help engage kids more, and I think it's a great thing. Mm. Now, uh, I mean, separate to this, of course, you've got your own book writing little uh, scenario going on there. We are just saying in the break there that you've, you've got four books, children's books now that you've you've written, and I, not on I this do. topic necessarily, but... Um... Yeah, I was going to say, no, none of them... Uh, although I, I will say there's, I have a character called Rocky Lobster, yep. who is a performing lobster boy, and, and look, he, he recycles and he uses compost, so uh, I guess that's that's part of uh, you know just who I am. It's it's a something that uh, even though it's really not a prominent part of the character, it's it's certainly not integral uh, to the story. But something that I just wanted to put into the books is that yeah, just make this nod to the fact that um, recycling and taking care of the environment, sustainability is, is a very important thing, even in a, a quite um, entertaining and fictitious world with uh, half human, half crustacean performing lobster boys. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you think that um, that mindset sort of become more standardised these days, Rove? I mean, if we cast our mind back sort of 20 years ago, it was, oh, big deal, you know, you might recycle. But how, how standardised do you think that's becoming now in the sort of public mindset? Look, I think it probably is, but it's it always feels like these bigger global issues are put down to the individual mm. it's always about you and separating your plastics and your paper to put out on the verge when it's also about well what about you know government subsidies for companies that use fossil fuels or the fact that that uh, major international mining companies can destroy sacred sites in western australia without any repercussions you know that's not something the little people can do you know at the start of the year there were protests from students about about the future that we are leaving for them and they were kind of scoffed at by all the world leaders so uh, i think it's not so much about the everyday people i think we're doing what we can but we kind of unfortunately hit this wall of resistance by the people who who we employ to to make those changes for us and in some respects i wonder whether they really do represent what we the people want yeah indeed uh dr jen give us a little bit on on nature book week i won't get that wrong again um i think uh, see see one of our one of our colleagues is an optometrist and she keeps telling me that i need to get glasses and she could be right but um (laughs) nature book week um what are some of the things that are happening over the course of the week jen that people should keep a lookout for Well, there's heaps and heaps of cool events. So this is the first ever Nature Book Week. And, of course, it's beginning on uh, National Threatened Species Day on the 7th of September, which we recognise every year as the day that the last Tasmanian tiger died in uh, in captivity in Hobart. So Threatened Species Day for me is just so bittersweet because it's so good that we acknowledge what's going on in terms of species extinction but Mm. also terribly sad. So Nature Book Week is about really celebrating the fact that we can experience nature in many ways and I think it's so pertinent this year when particularly in Melbourne we are really limited in the amount of nature we can get out to in person that having all of these incredible books um, to celebrate. So there's also sorts of events on this week. If you have a look at wilderness 
www.org.au forward slash nature book week. You'll see there are events on every week. We've got readings, there's all sorts of things. And on Thursday, um, Rove and I and our fellow judge, uh, David Lawrence, get to announce the winners of this incredible award that's been going on for more than 25 years now called the uh, Wilderness Society's Environment Award for Children's Literature. And we've had this crazy hard job of trying to judge who should win these awards because, Rove, you'll agree with me, oh, my gosh, how good are the books that we got to read? They are. And uh, as you were saying yourself, when we uh, launched the, or announced that the finalists, like there's some beautiful artwork in these books as well, and one yep. in particular about the, the last Tasmanian tiger, which is, you know, it's a heart-wrenching tale. But, um, you know, I've enjoyed reading a lot of these books with my daughter and, in fact, I'm trying to get her to help me out to make sure that, uh, you know, because I have struggled to try to choose a winner and I don't... Me too. As much as I've been, I've been so <laughs> pleased to be part of this, I suddenly realise the responsibility on my shoulders. I get to read all these incredible books. Um, but to the point where two of the books in particular... Uh, have connected with us so much at home when it came to uh, my daughter going to get gifts for her friend's birthdays. We went and got some of these books, which are all available in stores. Um, we bought some for some of her friends. And this week in particular, uh, quite a few uh, bookstores. I'm in, in Sydney at the moment. There's a, a chain called Harry Hartog have actually got um, a display in the front of their bookstore for um, the environmental um, awards. So that's that's a wonderful thing to feel that it is connecting with with people out uh, in in the uh, greater population for those who can get out and about at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I got my I got my kids super involved in the process, and so my kids are a little bit older than yours, so I actually handed out the books to them. We had them on a, on a roster, and every member <laughs> of every each member of the family read every book, and we did our scoring independently, and then I averaged the scores to see what we came out with, and. We had so many good conversations and it was funny, my 12-year-old initially said, I'm not reading those picture books and then he did and we discussed <laughs> how powerful kids' picture books can be in terms of the messages they share. We had some really profound conversations. Yeah. Um, really, how, yeah how many did you have to, to choose from, guys? I mean, you know, even uh, to me, this is every year, so the idea that there's that many good books that you are having trouble choosing between coming out on these topics for kids each year. It's fantastic. How many were there oh, this year? I think there were 70 odd on the short list. Cool. And then, sorry, and then the short list that we read, what were there, Rove? I think 10? Yeah. And uh, in different categories too. Yeah. So that's, that's one of the things I really loved about it was there were ones that were more picture books. There were some that was more in the non-fiction category, although even those ones are still incredibly entertaining and, and engaging and, and empowering as well, which is what I really loved about them. Um, so I'm sure when, again, decades ago this uh, idea first started, it's hard to know how many books were even there, but the fact that before the shortlist itself, which is quite a substantial number of books, there were so many in, in the first instance to, to put on that shortlist, I think is a really great indicator of where authors' heads are at at the moment and the fact that there really is a market for for books about the environment and conservation, um, that, uh, that there can be so many out there is a wonderful thing. And one of the great parts about this, of course, with them coming out each year is there is so much that we're learning 
each year that is different to the books that you and I wrote would have uh, you know and Jen not quite as old but uh, would have looked at when we were when we were kids the sort of stuff is just completely new and you know we we were just oh, talking yeah. about sharks a moment ago on the air and the new stuff about different types of sharks i mean all of these things need to be updated almost every year in many cases so it's, oh, it's important one of the one of the books uh it's the weird wild and wonderful of animals by tim flannery is is almost like an encyclopedia but of really cool fun facts that are presented in a really entertaining way my daughter has been walking around school telling her friends about did you know there's a thing called a zombie jellyfish it's a real thing look it up, this jellyfish that it reaches the end of its life cycle, it can actually bring itself back to life. It's incredible. It, like Most people wouldn't even know something like that exists. But, yeah, I remember when I was a kid, one of the few books you could get about just the environment or, or nature in general was usually about dinosaurs. Yeah. And I was looking at it. My mum still has it. And I was reading it when uh, when I was back with her, visiting her with, with my daughter, Ruby. And you realise, oh, yeah, all the facts are wrong. They're looking at, they've got a, a type of saurus, a, a dinosaur called a Brachiosaurus, which is my daughter's favourite dinosaur, in case you're interested. And because they have <laughs> nostrils, they have nostrils at the top of their head. And back then the theory was, well, they must live underwater and breathe out the top of their head. And we've since learnt that that's not the case at all. But there it was in, in a textbook. So it's just great to, to think that we've come so far and, and the more we learn, the more it can be put into books like this yep. for a, a new generation to connect with and read about and then maybe want to write about in the future. Yeah. Now, just before we let you go, uh, Rove, what, what do your ambassadorial duties for Nature Book Week involve over the next few days? Have you got any big things you've got to do? Well, it'll be, uh, unfortunately, yeah, the the current climate means there's no official getting out and cutting giant ribbons or handing out enormous <laughs> novelty checks which is very disappointing i don't even think i get a sash but it's, uh, yeah it will be it will be mainly letting people know uh that it, that it's happening i um i have been when i can out to bookstores bookstores to uh make people aware and um yeah just promoting it online and with people like yourself uh just to let people know that um you know that there are books out there that uh, are there to uh, encourage people to uh, do better with the environment and uh, think about conservation. And again, they're not dull, boring stories or, or textbooks. They're uh, engaging, and, and especially for for younger readers, which is which is great. And then a lot of them, not only just younger readers, but adults can get into them too. So get out and yep. and, and find them. Well, thanks so much for chatting. Sorry, Jane, Sorry, Thursday when we get to announce the winners, it's going to be very exciting. You can find all the links on the um, the URL I gave before, wilderness.org.au slash Nature Book Week. Yeah, I'm yes, sure. Yes, it will be broadcast on, on Facebook Live as well. So oh, very you, cool. You can watch uh, it as it happens. And uh, I'm sure if we just uh, – well, well, we'll put that on our channels, but Nature Book Week, pretty easy to Google folks. Have a look uh, or Google Rove McManus's uh, – yeah, he's probably all over him uh, with regards to his social media at the moment because this is a good gig. Rove, thanks so much for coming back to Triple R. Good to have you back on uh, after a such, a, such a time. Good luck with your own book writing adventures. I'm sure it's uh, fun. I'm sure your daughter's a, a great person to try those out on and get some good feedback. But uh, good luck with this week and hope this goes well. And, and thanks so much for chatting. Pleasure. Thanks very much. See you, Rove. See you guys. Folks, we're going to take a break for some important station announcements and we'll be back in just a few minutes with our next guest. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. 
Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gago on 3RRR. On the line now, we have Barbara Cadoso. She is a lecturer from Monash University in the Department of Nutrition, Dietetics, and Food. Welcome back to the studio, virtually at least. Barbara, how are you going? Thank you. I'm doing well, Shane. Thanks for inviting me. It's, it's great to have you back because what many people won't realize is you were the first person during the very beginnings of the pandemic that I sadly didn't get to meet in person in the studio that we talked to over Zoom. So this will be good to see if I've learned anything during the last 140-odd guests and improved my ability to interview people over Zoom. You've been killing it. It will be all good, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Now, every now and then you and I exchange uh, tweets when I tweet out what I've been eating on the pandemic. And you, of course, as a nutrition expert, have been correcting me um, and indicating that, no, those things aren't, aren't the best things for you. But I wanted to talk to you first about people's alcohol consumption, because this is something that I think ever since Peter Doherty tweeted out you know, that comment about Dan Murphy's opening hours, uh, there's been a lot of chatter about alcohol consumption. And probably even before that, people were talking about alcohol consumption. But what are you seeing in terms of, of that? And, and how, how problematic is any increase in that, if, if that's the case? That tweet was amazing, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. uh, and I think that after that, people just felt more open to discuss the matter. Mm. And to be more open, saying that they've been drinking more. In fact, there is um, uh, a survey that was conducted by a group of researchers at the, um, the Central Queensland University, and they saw that amongst the 1,500 people that were interviewed, 26% of them reported uh, being consuming more alcohol during the pandemic, yeah. which um, is problematic if people are drinking more because they're more stressed um, and because of that they cannot get enough uh, and enough uh, high quality of sleep. So this will affect uh, their lifestyle for, for worse. Um, so we need to be mindful that excessive alcohol consumption is quite dangerous. And at the beginning of the pandemic, um, I was I was consuming more alcohol myself, I must confess. But then I realized that this pandemic has been lasting way more longer than we all expected right, yep. at the beginning. And I couldn't keep up drinking as much as I was drinking uh, before. Of course, I was not drinking too much, but I was drinking more than I used to before the pandemic. Mm. So now I've adjusted my consumption of alcohol and I'm just back to drink alcohol on the weekends. On the weekends. <laughs> so, I mean, this is one of the things that I find interesting because when you say on weekends, many of us are struggling, you know, if not for this show being on today, I would not know it's Sunday. I, I, you know, all the days are kind of drifting together and the, the normal cues that we have during our working weeks and so forth for leaving the house on certain days and doing certain and things many of them have just been erased for many people and it just seems like this endless scenario that we're in especially people who are living alone who are not interacting with a lot of other people and just working constantly and doing things of that nature so how do we make sure that our our nutrition sort of that I, i'm guessing in the past was very linked to our activities you know you might eat work at lunch, uh, sorry, eat work at lunch, eat lunch at work, you see it's affecting me, uh, or you, you might only drink on weekends, or you might only go out to restaurants and eat different foods on weekends. How, how is that sort of playing out, and how do we make sure that we sort of maintain those balances that we normally have? 
I think the secret is to keep a routine. Um, if, even if we are working from home, try to keep up with a routine, you know, um, stick with a regular time um, for, for all the meals and work, try not work on weekends. So by doing so, we make sure that our weekends are different from weekdays mm. um, as much as we can. Of course, we're all limited and we, we are all stuck at home, but we should do something to make the days or at least the weekends different. Yeah. Are, are you expecting to see sort of some better nutrition elements coming out from the fact that more and more people are eating at home and so potentially cooking more? Is there, is there going to be a bit of a, a sort of uplift in terms of our nutritional sort of intake as a result of that? Or is that is that not something that you, you're expecting? Well, um, some researches conducted here in Australia showed that people are um, spending more time in the kitchen, so they are cooking more. They've incorporated more fruits and veggies in their diet, which is amazing. So most uh, uh, in these um, surveys, people reported uh, being consuming less um, um, highly processed foods, which is amazing. I'm not sure, though, if this will be maintained after the mm. pandemic. Yep. I'm concerned about that. So yep. I wouldn't be um, too positive about that, actually. Yeah. I remember a few years ago when the um, there were the Brisbane floods and the field of hydrologists suddenly became rock stars. Like everyone wanted to talk to a hydrologist. What, is this starting to happen with all of you nutrition folk? I mean, this is a really crucial time for people to have better understanding and knowledge about their intake and how to make sure that's that's going well. Are you all putting out, you know, cooking videos and nutrition videos? Is, is this a time when the nutritionists rise up? Well, I'm, I'm still not a superstar, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that people are more interested in cooking and you know, give me a crack at different recipes and even bringing the kids to the kitchen. Mm. I think it's a great opportunity for uh, nutritional education. So we get the kids uh, to know more about what they are eating. And this will be certainly have good consequences for these kids. Um, so I think that, yeah, people are more interested in knowing how to bake. And we saw that it was really hard to get flour and, and yeast <laughs> yeah. in the supermarket early in the pandemic. And I think it's a great um, way to spend your time during the pandemic, to do something different, to get creative in the kitchen, to get the, the kids um, in the kitchen cooking their own meals. Yeah, presumably there's also an opportunity at the moment to really drive some deeper knowledge around nutrition. I mean, I know you've done this to me. I mean, I interviewed you, what, six, seven months ago, and, and every time I walk past those damn Brazil nuts in the supermarket, your your voice is in my head going, buy them, buy them. And I'm thinking, I don't want to buy them. I don't like Brazil nuts. But, you know, getting that deeper knowledge into people of some of the things that they really should be eating, presumably something at the moment we can, we can do better with. Yeah, I think people are more open to listen to uh, nutritional advice, and this is great. I just hope that they incorporate these uh, nutritional advice in their diet after the pandemic. Yeah. And just, just to finish up and go back to Brazil nuts, where are things at with that? Uh, you know, why do we need to eat more Brazil nuts? Well, Brazil nuts are the main um, food source for selenium, which mm. is a micronutrient um, <clears throat> that has an antioxidant role, very important. And my studies um, 
have demonstrated that Brazil nut intake by increasing the, um, the consumption of selenium increases um, or, or maintains brain health. And this is quite important if we think of prevention of Alzheimer's disease, for instance. Yeah. Now, I can see on our Zoom call you have your, um, your background there as your hometown. Just before you go, tell us wh- where is that hometown and, and um, how long have you been in Australia? So my hometown is called Laguna. It's in the south of Brazil. Um, it's a little town by the coast. You can see the, yeah, it's gorgeous. the lighthouse there. It's just a beautiful place. Uh, and I've been, of course, homesick because I'm stuck here. I cannot go to Brazil, visit family and friends. So I just have, I always have um, a photo of my hometown on Zoom. Yeah, look, it's fantastic. And, and Barbara, I think uh, please do not lose the accent. It's awesome. Uh, love, love hearing your accent. The um, I think the, the, the role of nutritionists at the moment is so important. And at a time when we're we're really seeing people open up to that sort of advice. There's there's certainly a lot going on there. And I know you have a big team down there at Monash. Um, good luck with all the ongoing work down there. And I hope that, um, you know, this this gives you guys opportunities to really teach people more about, you know, good nutrition and some of the things that have been done. But thanks so much for being a guest today again on Einstein and GoGo. And we look forward to seeing you here at some stage in person. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome, Barbara. Till next time. Till next time. Folks, we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in just a moment talking about a very, very important uh, health issue. Independent Melbourne Radio 3RRR. The guest that we just spoke to a moment ago, if you missed her name, it was Barbara Cardoso. She is from Monash University in the Department of Nutrition, Dietetics and food and is one of my favorites we uh however now have another person that i'm very well uh, accustomed to chatting to who i work with sometimes at the university professor natalie hannon is the is an associate professor and is also the associate dean of diversity and inclusion in the faculty of medicine dentistry and health sciences at the university of melbourne and head of the therapeutics drug and vascular function laboratory good morning nat that is quite a mouthful Thanks, Shane. Thanks so much for having me on. (laughs) Look, it's great to talk to you because we're going to talk about preeclampsia. And I wanted to tell you first that when I was tweeting out that you were coming on, I I mistakenly misspelt the word nutrition when I was talking about Barbara's work that we had on just a moment ago. And the reason being is I was so focused on getting the word preeclampsia put in properly. And my phone kept auto-correcting it to pre-Cambrian. What is that about? How is it <laughs> Who that, knows? How is it people should know the word pre-Cambrian more than pre-eclampsia? This seems outrageous. Exactly. It seems Good outrageous. Point. Yeah. Now, tell us first, give us a bit of a rundown. For those who don't know what preeclampsia is, it's a pretty, I mean, I, I suspect some people will have some knowledge of it from Downton Abbey, but beyond that, have probably never heard of it. So tell us, tell us what it's all about. Yeah, it's actually a horrendous um, complication that inflicts pregnancy. So clinically, these women will come in and they'll have serious blood pressure, high blood pressure, so hypertension. And when their urine's checked, they've got protein in the urine. So that shows that their kidneys are failing and they're damaged. And so basically what it is, is the placenta, um, for some reason in pregnancy, becomes this hypoxic, um, dysfunctional organ and spews out these toxins, these anti-angiogenic factors into the maternal circulation. And that spreads through the mother, causing like a wildfire to her vessels. And those vessels feed her major organs. So you can imagine when they're damaged and constricted, 
there's also serious organ damage. So it actually kills around, well, greater than 70,000 women each year and uh, a far greater rate of perinatal loss. So we, we know that about half a million babies each year are lost to preeclampsia. So, so when, when you say 70,000 women, that's worldwide, and I assume in the sort of reporting, yeah. reporting Western world, I, I suspect. As, you know. Yeah, it's um, much more serious in underdeveloped nations, mm. but it still has a huge toll even in uh, Western developed societies as well. Yeah, and is there any way to determine, you know, pre that really critical stage that this is um, something that someone's at risk of or that it's impending? Yeah, so in the last few, I guess the last, little while the research is really focused on new ther- uh, new diagnostic strategies mm. um, we're still not great at detecting it for some women but for other women we definitely know that there's a high risk group and that might be women with a high bmi so over, you know overweight obese women um, women with a history of cardiovascular disease and also we know women in their first pregnancies are actually most susceptible most at risk so we do have an idea of what the risk factors are but yep. it could also strike the clinician um, overnight. Yeah. And just uh, sort of enlighten me a bit here around my, my understanding is one of the things that's happening in pregnancy, which is really weird, is that the a woman's immune system essentially shuts off to parts of the body. So it, it sort of it has to accept that there are some cells in there that aren't really normal, that it would normally attack. But during mm. pregnancy, the body is so, you know, the, the, the female body is so intelligent that it knows I'm not going to attack those foreign cells. I've got to let those cells go. So is that in any way related to what's happening in preeclampsia that, you know, these some parts of what's going on there gets out into the body, isn't dealt with by the immune system, but just wreaks havoc? Yeah, so there's a huge body of work in the immune system in pregnancy and we know that it does shift in pregnancy, which you want because Mm. you don't want to reject this fetus that's half father, half mother. And so we do know that the placenta itself has a higher proportion of genes that reflect the father. So the, the maternal immune system really has to change and think about that. So we, when we look at big sequencing studies, it actually shows that in some cases of preeclampsia, the immune system is actually really affected. Mm. And whether or not it's, um, uh, we, we're not really sure how much that is actually attacking the fetus itself or whether it's doing something to the placenta and inhibits the placenta from remodeling the maternal spiral artery. So those big, huge arteries that feed that um, placenta and the fetus during pregnancy. So there's definitely uh, a lot of research going into the immune side of the placenta and the immune regulation during pregnancy. But we do also know sometimes these women have no immune compromise, um, there's no immune complications, and we still get full-blown preeclampsia where these women have to sometimes have their babies delivered at 28, 30 weeks of pregnancy, mm. which inflicts huge risk to the fetus uh, and the baby then, whether or not it actually survives. And if it does, huge complications for that baby throughout life. Yeah. Now, Natalie, what, what are you specifically working on in your lab? So we are trying to develop new therapies for pregnancy complications, particularly preeclampsia is a huge focus of mine. And the way we do that is actually instead of looking at controlling blood pressure, we actually try and look at the underlying cause of preeclampsia, which is the placenta itself, as well as the response or the sensitivity of the mother's blood vessels. So we're looking at therapies that can 
quench, if you like, the actual dysfunctional placenta, stop it spewing out more of these toxins into the maternal circulation. And then what we're trying to do is also have the vasculature relax more and not be so um, constrictory in response to these factors. And so we're hoping that that will also have a second-pronged approach if we can cardio-protect or protect the vasculature and the cardiovascular system, then hopefully these women won't go on to um, also develop severe risk for cardiovascular disease later in life, which we know these women are at huge risk for. So Mm. they get through pregnancy, they survive this, they may have had a a preterm infant that took care for, and then now they've got up to five times increased risk of dying from cardiovascular disease because, uh, you know, this great thing they've done to become a mother but then now they're at huge risk for um, long-term complications yeah now we we ended up uh, discussing having this interview today because i was sort of outgassing a little bit on twitter about um, trying to learn how much money was going into research specifically around issues that affected um, the female body and not the male body and and what the what the differences were there and whether there was, you know, a, a type of cancer that affects every, everyone gets a lot of money. And, and I get that breast cancer is probably an outlier here because there's been some, you know, very famous people promoting that, which is fantastic. But things yeah. like ovarian cancer and preeclampsia and, you know, endometriosis and these, they just seem to get like really insignificant amounts of research funding relative to the cost they deliver to the healthcare system and how badly they affect many women. Is, it, is that your, your perception yeah. of that? Yeah, 100%. Uh, If you think about it, every single child will go on to become an adult. And then every single mother, if if they've had a pregnancy complication, it might be preeclampsia or gestational diabetes, they're now at lifelong risk of major um, illness and cardiovascular disease. And so are the children that are born into these pregnancies. Mm. So we're looking at a huge percentage of the population. If you think how many women... Um, are pregnant each year there's 131 million women will give birth each year and yet how much do we actually spend on funding core research that would look after those women that do have up to 10 percent of those women will have some pregnancy complication and then it's those children as well so you're right it's spot on it's a huge area we should be investing in yeah and just not at all yeah, it, it seems in some of these areas too, and we've only got a couple of minutes left, but we seem to lack some sort of very fundamental understanding of what's causing yeah. these things. I mean, I haven't heard you at any point really say exactly what causes preeclampsia. There's a lot of mystery yeah. there. It seems like yeah. we're a long way from where we need to be relative, you know, in many other conditions. We know what causes them. We just don't know how to treat them. A lot of the money's on treatments. But this, yeah. this goes back to we don't even know what's causing this really. Exactly. And we know it's been around since, um, you know, BC times. So Mm. we know it's been around so long. We still don't actually fully understand this complication and what it is that would, in some women, um, you know, become preeclampsia. In other women, we get a condition called fetal growth restriction where the mother remains completely fine, but the fetus does not grow because, again, the placenta is dysfunctional. So we really need some fundamental understanding and better improved. And there's some great people working on this in Australia and around the world. But we really need to understand better what happens in even early onset preeclampsia versus term disease and gestational diabetes and fetal growth restriction. So a lot of it stems from the placenta. And yet, how much do we actually, you know, know? We really need more fundamental research in this area. Yeah. So there's a giant uh, medical research fund there, the Medical Research Future Fund. Presumably, uh, they could throw a, I don't know, a few hundred million at uh, what is probably, you know, 
what is it, fifty one percent of our population and the um and all the healthcare issues that go with this part of the body? Oh, one hundred percent. They did announce a small pot this start of this year, but if you look at it in relationship to what they are funding, um, for example, this pandemic, which of mm. course is important, but we're looking at you know something that's been around for a long, long time, and they're just un- there's no there's no real structural funding to support this yeah. research. Look, it's, it's an area that we obviously need to put a lot more into and happy to give it a bit of airtime here today and no doubt we'll talk about it again. You and I talk about these things often. So, Natalie, yes. thanks so much for uh, being on Triple R today. Good luck with the ongoing work. I can see it, it must be frustrating when you have limited resources to be tackling such a huge issue for so many people. But uh, great talking to you. And um, Thanks so much. Thanks for, thanks thanks for, for having me. Thanks for putting in this effort on this area because it's um, it really is important. Uh, oh, folks, no worries. Thank you. Thanks, Natalie. Uh, folks, that was uh, Professor Natalie Hannon from the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and the head of the Therapeutics Discovery and Vascular Function Laboratory at the University of Melbourne. We're going to have to hand over to the team from EDIT in just a minute, guys. Um, it's been great chatting to you again this Sunday, and we look forward to having another hour of science next week. Uh, I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. A huge thank you to the people who have been uh, subscribing this morning. I just saw one come through from Mary Gaynor, um, who has just wanted to let let us know that they do actually listen to our show every week and... um, and know that they're not related to me. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> they listen to the show even though they're not related to me. That's true. I thought it was just my mum listening, but uh, thanks, Mary, for letting me know. That's really important. Um, but everyone who's subscribed to Triple R, we really appreciate that. Thanks so much. Until next week, uh, we will hopefully see you all safe. Until then, chat in a week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteinagogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.